Welcome to the Seller Roundtable e-commerce coaching and business strategies with Andy Arnott and Amy Wees. Those are all great points, Mark. So uh, one of the things that I would love to talk to you about, because I've had multiple um, lawyers and CPAs and things like that throughout the years, and I swear I get different opinions from everyone. Um, I'm sure you probably have. Yeah, and, and so, you know, I mean, it, law is, you know, everybody thinks law is, is this such a cut and dry thing and same thing with taxes, but it's 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 just like anything, just like selling on Amazon. There's a lot of uh, confinement, but it's also a lot of art and uh, interpretation and so much other things. And depending on who you go to, they're going to give you different advice. So I would love to hear from you um, in terms of, you know, when people go to form an LLC uh, or a corporation for their business, uh, specifically since we're, you know, e-com here, generally, you know, for an e-com business, you know, should they do a C-Corp? Should they do a, you know, should they do, uh, you know, uh, an LLC and then be taxed as an S-Corp? I mean, what uh, formation type do you think um, is ideal? And I know that it's not cut and dry for every situation. So if you could give me some, maybe some examples on why you would use an S-Corp over a C-Corp or vice versa, I would really love to hear that. Okay, no problem. So the first is for almost any non-resident person, you're not going to make an S-Corp. Because in order to make the S election, you have to be a U.S. resident, permanent resident, or a U.S. citizen. So if you want to be any sort of owner in this entity, and you don't reside in the United States lawfully, forget it. You're not doing an S corporation because you're not eligible. So that means you either form a corporation that's treated as a what they call a C corp, or you form an LLC and you make the election to be treated as a C corp, a sole proprietor, or a partnership. There's three different ways you can be choose to be or an S-Corp actually could be taxed as that too. So the basic question is going to be, assuming you can do each, is a comparison of the tax rates between the two countries. Because if you form a C-Corporation in the United States and it's under regular rules, its net profit is 21%. That's the tax, end of story. Now, you may say, well, that's 21%. When I take the money out, I'm going to pay more tax on it. Yes, you are. Now, if you live in a jurisdiction that has 70% personal income tax, ooh, this 21% looks really nice leaving in there for three, four, five years, a bit that I don't need to survive on and use it later on. If you're in a 10% tax bracket, that sort of sucks. You don't really want it. So the other, besides just the tax rates between the two, is you have to add, what tax am I going to pay in the country I'm in? What tax am I going to pay in the U.S.? And yes, you can get credits for stuff in the U.S. against your home tax, but if your tax rate's lower, you're going to lose out on those credits. If your tax rate's higher, you can gain some. You have to compare those. Look at a U.S. tax treaty, because what people don't understand, it's not just the tax amount ultimately at the end. It's what's called a withholding tax. And the U.S. has a rule that says if it's non-U.S. real property and you make a payment to a non-resident alien, unless you come under one of the rare exceptions, you must withhold 30% of what you're paying. And that's not a tax due. That's just a, hey, we're holding this to make sure you file your individual income tax return with the U.S. government. And if you don't owe that tax, you'll get it back next year. So that's 30%. There's a lot of tax treaties that will reduce or eliminate that. For example, in Italy, if you just choose to make a C-corporation and it's a 
corporation for both countries' purposes, that dividend goes down to that withholding goes down to five percent. That could be huge, especially in cash flow going on. So you have to have both a tax treaty and an eligible CPA to make the decision to compare what's the tax in both countries. That's really what's going to decide 99% of what entity you're forming when you're an overseas person. U.S. person, slightly different story. U.S. person like you, if you want to do another business, it's going to depend on your other income, how much income you're expected from this business, what's your threshold for making money, what you need to do with this money to live on or not live on, whether you're going to make an action to be treated as an S corporation or a regular corporation. The other thing that's problem with it, individuals and partnerships, like a, an LLC as a partnership, is there's an extra tax in the United States. It's called self-employment tax. So if everybody else is aware, when you work for a company and they pay you a W-2, you work as an employee, you have Social Security and Medicare withheld from your paycheck. And your employer pays half of that, you pay half. When you're self-employed, meaning you have a partnership or treated as a partnership or self-employed proprietor, you pay all of that, 15.2%. And that's in addition to income tax. And the only thing that reduces it are your business expenses or any after-tax credit, such as the earned income tax credit um, that you might be able to get on an individual basis. So you're, that because that's when you decide this S election or not is appropriate for U.S. It is complicated. It's not the best answer. But for non-U.S. residents, you're not forming an S corporation. You really have to take a look and say, what's the overall tax? Am I going to pay 70% tax? Or 50% tax. Because from a business protection side, they're all going to be a, you can get the business protection with both an LLC and a corporation the same in terms of dealing with the outside customers, et cetera. Um, it's internally and taxes that's really the big kicker there. Awesome. Thank you. That That's a, that's a great expl explanation. I did not realize um, that, you know, an S Corp is not a good option for somebody overseas. So that's great advice, especially for those listening that are, are, are not from the U.S. or, or have U.S. citizenship. Um, one of the things that you hear a lot of, and especially if you're a fan of like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and you've run through a lot of his books, is the concept of uh, piercing the veil, right? So that's, you yeah. know, if you can explain to, to people who have never heard of what that, you know, what that phrase means, and also after explaining, you know, giving a little bit of background on it, maybe, you know, ways to protect yourself. Uh, from somebody coming after you. We we talked about it a little bit uh, earlier. Yep. Yeah, we did. And I meant, that's what I was mentioning when people said they felt protected. And Amy specifically mentioned that the reason she hired him was to make sure that, you know, she wasn't personally liable for everything. Because that's one of the whole points is to, if something goes wrong in the business, you know, you're not going to be liable. Now, if you happen to be the person doing the business and you do something like, okay, I'm going to get drunk and drive for my business and crash into a school bus, yeah, I'm sorry, it may not matter what, your corporation's probably not protecting you. Um, but the general rule for piercing the veil is the general rule is if you act on behalf of an entity, then any liability for something that turns out to be wrong or a court holds to have been wrong is taken care of by the company and it stays with the company. So you manufacture a product and you buy bad know, a bad raw material from somewhere that turns out to be, I don't know, poisonous as a product that people can put into their mouth. And you get five people, you know, saying, hey, you know, your product caused my baby to go to the hospital, you know, because you had a different batch of raw material you put into the product. 
yeah, you're going to get a bunch of lawsuits over that. And those are not going to be $5,000 lawsuits. So what you want to say is worst case scenario, if something dreadful happens, I can walk away from this business. But my house, my car, my personal bank account, all my personal stuff is protected. And I don't have to worry about that if the business goes. Whatever I invested, I lost it. So be it if need be. But, you know, I'm okay. That is what people expect. Piercing the corporate veil is when they, like I said, they go right through it like a knife through hot butter. And then they go after you personally and say, you know, you owe us. And that's the biggest gap. And that's what I said by people that just going on and forming the LLC at the state, Department of State webpage for your state doesn't give you that protection. Um, and yes, there are some things you can do on a personal level to protect an assets, but that only works in some states. And when you have a place like Texas, which is a community property state, is a whole other story you know, on how you can do that, you have certain limitations sometimes. So you don't want to get to that point, absolutely. So every state has a little bit of difference with what they will allow. But generally the rule, there's two hardcore rules, no matter what state you're in, that you need to do. If you violate either of these two rules, expect somebody to be able to pierce your corporate veil like there's no tomorrow. Rule number one, do not commingle business and non-business funds. If you have started a separate entity, it has its own bank account. It pays for only business expenses. You only deposit business income. Now, we understand small business. Sometimes you have to put money into a small business. Sometimes you can take money out from a small business if things are good. You can do that, that's not a problem. You just have to transfer the money to yourself. If it's online, transfer business personal. Call it, you know, shareholder, owner, whatever, and let the CPA classify it as appropriate and let them know so you're not surprised at the tax year or that you make some improper distributions. But you can take money out and you can put money in yourself. What you can't do is pay for your personal items through the business. Oh, a four of us are going out to eat this weekend. Okay, let me put it on the corporate card. Yeah. No. Oh, we're actually going to go fly to uh, Puerto Rico for a vacation. Let me put on the corporate card. No, that's called commingling. You're paying for personal stuff in the same. Nothing says you can't take the money out, pay yourself, and then use your personal card. But no, commingling, not keeping any separate records, like not having that bank account saying, well, it's the same banking account I do. I do all my personal out of it. That's almost like death sentence. That's like lawyers, gonna, you know, any litigation lawyer is going to salivate getting that type of case. That's number one. Funds are not commingled. Number two, adequate capitalization. Meaning if somebody is going to sue the company as a separate entity, there has to be some sort of expectation that they can get something. You'll hear a lot of people saying, well, I have no insurance. I have nothing because they can't get anything in my company. Well, that's number two when they're most probably going to go right past through it and go to you. Because if you're operating in business, you're expected to be able to cover something that's reasonable. What's reasonable? Depends on what you're doing. If you're manufacturing woolen mittens that you knit yourself, what's the worst case your woolen mittens gonna happen? Someone gets a little scratchy because they're allergic to wool and didn't read? Okay, what's that gonna be worth? You know, maybe a couple thousand dollars at best. You don't have to have a whole lot. You manufacture nitroglycerin? 
you probably need a lot more because the risk is going to happen if something goes wrong. Boom. And actually, that's a bad example because that's something called strict liability. And when you when you work in those areas, you're sort of toast no matter what if something goes wrong. But if you have a part with lots of pieces that you have to manufacture, many of those pieces break off and go into it can be followed by a kid or is poisonous or causes a problem or the part breaks and therefore the whole machine itself doesn't work properly. Now, what happens if a machine has, you know, intricate sawing capability and when the parts you manufacture ends up breaking the saw, causes the saw to cut through somebody or something? All of those are those risks. And you have to understand what's a reasonable risk for what you do. They have to be able to recover. Now, if you have tons of money in the corporate bank account, you have tons of equipment, that's probably good enough. The problem is they take it all, you now have absolutely nothing whatsoever. One of the things you can do to help prevent that is to buy liability insurance and make sure you follow everything they say, tell them exactly what you do, don't lie to the insurance company, don't try to cut it short, make sure you tell them everything you do and when you change, you let them know. and You answer their questions honestly because it's so easy for insurance companies not to honor their policy if you violate the rules. One example being several contractors, they have a policy that says, if you use a subcontractor, you have to make sure they have proper insurance. Well, if they don't, we charge you a higher deductible. So your $5,000, your $1,000 or $5,000 deductible now has gone to $25,000 because you didn't do what you were supposed to do. But if you do what you're supposed to do and you get this insurance for liability, that's considered an asset. That's got reasonable recovery. That will help reduce big time. Those two are the most critical. You have those covered, it's going to be pretty hard to go through after those two. What Amy mentioned earlier about having these minutes or these notes, et cetera, so that's treating it as a separate corporation. That's when you keep notes of what you do as a shareholder because you're acting basically as a fiduciary. If you were handling your mom's money, you're not going to say, I'm going to make every single decision on my own and not say a thing. And I'll just go to Atlantic City every week. No, you're probably not because you're under a duty. Same thing to a corporation. If you're going to make a big decision, document it. This is what we're going to do. If you have more than one partner or shareholder, make sure both of you have discussed it and you've done it. Because if you don't, then you got you know partner issues. But if you create the separate bank account, create the entity, new number, letterhead separate, and treat it as separate, and you have your operating agreement and your resolutions, it's not necessarily going to be in and of itself, but if you ever have to go to court, the judge is like, okay, you've done this, you've done this, and judge, here's all the written stuff we've done showing that everything is in the corporate name. Having that there may just make tip the difference to say, hey, you're treating this seriously like you should, and you weren't. So it's important to have those corporate trappings, as we call it, in place, but they're not nearly as important as the first two. Those two things I gave you, Failure to do those, I will almost guarantee you that they're going to go through the United States. I don't care what state you're in, they're going to go through that corporate bail. Yeah. So that that was a great. I'm glad that you ended in the in the documentation thing because um, with some of the people that we're working with right now, and and I've heard this from so many other people. No matter what it is, you know, it's like if you're you know if you're having a dispute with your neighbor and their dog's taking a dump on your front yard. If you document what time and you know what I mean, like. The documentation is so important because if you don't have that documentation, then it's a he said, she said kind of thing. 
And usually, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but a lot of times that's the, the plaintiff is at a better uh, st better standing because they're the one who's, who's bringing the complaint. And if you can't prove them otherwise, um, you know, that, that's a... No. No. So generally rule is if you want to bring something, the burden of proof is on you to prove it as a rule. So if you're going to say this person did or didn't do something, A, you, the burden of proof is on you who's bringing it to do it. So you're actually, if it's hard, the problem is if you don't have much and the other person doesn't have much and you're living up to a judge, it's like a coin flip. It's like, okay, you know what? We didn't document this. Who's the judge going to believe? Does he believe you or does he believe the other person? And it's a matter of fact. So the judge in these cases operates as a fact finder. And if he finds as a fact, the other person's more believable than you, not a lot of appeal to that like there is on the law. The judge ruled wrongly. Judge made a fact, finding, determination. You know, absent something egregious like the guy admitted later, I committed perjury and I didn't say this. <laughs> it's hard to overrule that. So anytime you, first of all, going to a judge is risky no matter what, anytime you go to a lawsuit. But the more you document, the more happy lawyers are willing to settle when you have more stuff. So if you're going to minimize costs, minimize the risk, document everything. And one of the biggest things in corporations is let's say you have, you're the managing partner, you run most of the day-to-day -day operations. You have three partners who have like 3% each. And you fail to do the proper resolutions when you decide to take out an SBA loan or an EIDL loan, or you decide to put some money in because it needs to go in. You do it on your own. Now what? Now you've taken action. Even though you may have had the right in voting to do so because it's over, you've now violated some of these statutes, the corporate rules on what you can and can't do. And now if something goes up, it's a breach of duty. You don't have documentation. Well, it clearly says X, and you didn't do X. It's hard to defend against that one when they don't even have to prove it because it says you shall not, and you didn't, or you and you did, which they don't longer have to prove it. They just have to show that it was done. Now it's on you. Interesting. So um, in terms of, uh, you know, I'm kind of switching gears here now, but, um, sure. you know, if, if you're working with somebody overseas, they come into Amazon, they, they build a, a fairly sizable Amazon business in the U.S., um, and they say, hey, I want to sell the business. Um, you know, how could you help somebody uh, in that position? And what are the, some of the considerations to think about if, uh, if somebody who's not a U.S. citizen is trying to sell a U.S. Uh, based uh, company, um, you know, specifically for e-com? Okay. Actually, it's really not a whole lot of differences that you would with anybody else in selling a business. They're relatively minor, the differences, because basically you're going to say, all right, how much am I getting for this? And what are the terms? People don't realize you can negotiate terms all day long on what you get or how you get. The biggest thing with that people forget is people often buy a business on small amounts and like, I oh, will pay you a percentage of recurring you know, or of revenue. Well, you need to secure that. What happens if you don't get that revenue? What happens if you don't get that money? You need to secure. Anytime you don't get full cash down and you're either carrying a note back or you're getting paid on a percentage or residual or something, you need to make sure that's secure. And where I can help is say, okay, let's make sure that that is secure. Here's the things you have to consider when you're selling the business. Here's the possible terms you negotiate. It's not a legal thing. But have you thought about doing this? No, I hadn't thought about that. Okay, let's see what we can get for the business. And if you come to me early enough, I can refer you to somebody else that says, hey, maybe if 
you know, you cannot increase your revenue anymore. We can do more in the business so that instead of getting two times revenue, maybe you'll get three times revenue or four times revenue. So the biggest thing, one, is if you know you're going to sell your business, start preparing early. If you want to sell your business a couple years beforehand, say, here's where I want to sell. Come to me and say, let's take a look at this and see what we need to do and set up the time frame. If you have to sell, you are under so much worse in conditions than what you accept than if you're ready to sell. So first thing I'm going to say is come to me earlier than you think you are to make sure you're in a good position. Second, what are you going to do about funding if you're not getting paid up front? Getting paid cash up all up front, really not much of a concern as much. At that point, you're like, okay. Now, the other thing is, of course, when you buy a business, there's two ways to buy it. Asset purchase or sale purchase. Sorry, stock or unit purchase. Asset purchase, they buy all your assets. You let them use the name. You shut down your entity. They form their entity. There we go. Stock purchase, they actually purchase your stock outright. They buy your whole company. Stock everything in it. And there's people like, why would you ever do that? If you're on an online Amazon business, you probably won't. But there are certain businesses where there are contracts or licenses involved where you can't really do it under the state law unless you purchase the ownership of the entity itself. So there are reasons to do so. Um, and if it's an asset purchase, here's one of the biggest things is you have to file your U.S. tax return at the end. So you have to know how much you're going to gain on this. And one of the things people forget is the IRS has a rule. It says anybody worldwide that sells a business in the United States or if you're a U.S. citizen selling a business worldwide, you must report how you break up the money. So if I buy business from you, Andy, for $100,000, we have to break it up. All right, 10000 to furniture, 10000 to inventory, 50000 to goodwill, 10000 to a non-compete. Now, most of that doesn't have a big tax effect. Certain, a couple of those items can have a huge tax effect. So not knowing what you're agreeing to when you have to allocate, and the IRS says you will submit an allocation form. So if you don't do it, they're going to come back at you. And if both of you submit a form independently and those numbers are different, guess what? IRS is going to come back and say, let's take a look at your numbers. If you want to agree, you have to agree ahead of time. And if you don't know what you're doing there, you risk large amounts of tax effect. No, do. So just by the warning of that to work with the CPA and let you know what you're missing, that's the other thing that we can do as a sale. The, other, the only other thing is potentially as a form business, understand that they may withhold 30% of the proceeds. So if you need this money for your mom's hospital, you know, don't necessarily expect that the full amount is not subject to withholding that you're going to get back next year. So that's really the biggest thing from plus of course your tax you're going to pay in the US, but generally as a rule the capital gains tax right now is relatively cheap and is usually less than most other places. Not always the case. So that's really it. I mean not much difference for foreign non-US companies other than those sort of tax considerations. Some of those are great tips, though. All right, what I'd like to ask at the end here, Mark, is um, you said that you, you're into uh, like reading and listening, watching TV, things like that. What, what are uh, anything that you're currently listening to, watching, watching, reading that has made a big impact in your life in terms of you know business, personal, you know any any anything that's uh, really catching your attention right now? Okay, well, most of the time when I read, because I have to do all this reading for work, when I read, I want to read stuff that's you know feeds my brain. You know, I don't want to think. When I go to read, I'm reading translated Chinese novels. I'm reading Westerns. I'm reading sci-fi. 
I'm reading fun stuff that I don't have to think about, just boom, feed me. But I have noticed that as a member of BNI, there have been some great people that have talked to BNI that aren't part of BNI that have done some amazing things. And, you know, several of the books Dr. Meisner found in BNI has written have been several other people that he's co-authored with. The book Who's in Your Room is something that's really, really something important. And the basic premise is you have a you have a room. You, you are the doorkeeper. You can let anybody you want into the room. Whoever you let in will never leave. From a business standpoint, which I was first written, who do you want in your room? From a living standpoint, your friends, who do you want in your room? That's one of the most, you know, you know, very powerful, very limited things that I have heard and seen. That book, Who's in Your Room? It's really not a big book. It's not very long. Um, it is great. Another book, probably not necessarily for individuals, but if you work for a company or work with a company, there's a book called Scrum, doing twice the work in half the time. And I don't know how much the author really knew about rugby when he wrote it, because he's the rugby term, but the book's amazing about what to do and basically avoiding the inaction of trying to get something started and not doing it. It's a, um, it's a phenomenal book. Those are, uh, and then one more thing. Thing, the last one I was looking. Um, I just got some information. I'm going to do some more on this. Um, I don't remember the author's name because I blanked on uh, Mike Mc Profit First. No, no Mike McCallowitz. Yeah, we've had we've Thank actually you. had yes. him on the show on on the podcast. Have you? Yeah. Awesome. His, yeah, he's one of our favorites. The concept behind it is an awesome concept. I. Yep. I, I'm sort of sad to say I just found out about it last week through the BNI National Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, my, he's I'm, got a bunch know. of good ones. Yeah, Profit First is great. Yeah. And then he has uh, Clockwork, uh, the yep. Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. I mean, he's got a bunch. And yeah, he is one of the best authors because, number one, if you listen to the audio version, he's hilarious. He's a really funny guy. Um, and number two, uh, you know, a lot of these kinds of books where, you know, people are trying to teach people processes and, you know, accounting, you know, it, it goes over people's heads and there's not really any actionable, um, you know, anything actionable that comes along with the book. Whereas Mike has a ton of resources, printouts, you know, things where you can actually take uh, what he's teaching and put them into practice. Um, yeah. And really, you know, for somebody who's not, you know, it doesn't have an MBA can actually go through it and, and kind of learn it and understand it. Um, so yeah, that, that's, uh, I'm glad that you, uh, you agree in, uh, in the premise where Amy and I, yeah, we're huge fanboy and girl with uh with mike mccallowitz he's 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 a stud and and uh you know great i'm gonna become a bigger fan yeah he's fantastic it does make it easy to access as opposed to thinking like how do i do all this downloaded and put it in place you're so right yep yep absolutely all right mark thank you so much for being with us um if you're uh listening on the podcast we really uh appreciate when you guys rate review subscribe uh we we keep growing every single month uh i keep uh looking at our stats and uh, seeing that you guys are really listening and enjoying. We're growing all over the world. So I really, really appreciate that guys. Thank you so much for listening. in. we really appreciate it. If you haven't done so yet, please join us live every Tuesday, 1 PM Pacific, uh, Pacific time. So roundtable.com forward slash live. You can jump in here with the meeting. We're going to end the, uh, the recording and the live. So uh, we do what, what we call extra innings where, you know, we sit and kind of do a, a quick little five to 15 minute talk where you can ask uh, our guest questions. You can ask us questions. 
and it doesn't get recorded or pushed out. So it's just uh, in, a, in a little intimate setting. So please join us live if you haven't done so yet. And we'll see you next time on the Seller Roundtable. Thank you guys so much for being with us. Hey, one more thing. We got to tell them how to reach Mark. <laughs> oh, yeah, Mark. Go ahead, Mark. Before <laughs> yeah, Mark, um, what's your contact information so folks can reach out okay. to you? Absolutely. So the best way to reach me is usually by email, which is mmiles at markmileslaw.com. But LinkedIn is where you can probably get to me most. So if you just type in the law offices of Mark with a C, Miles, I will come up. There's not a whole lot of us. You know, Mark with a C that's a lawyer. Not a lot of those, even on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn and email is the best way to actually reach me. I do have a website, markmileslaw.com. All right, and Mark with a C, um, and we'll put it in the show notes as well. All right, thanks, everyone. Uh, thank you. For thanks for Mark. remembering that, Amy. Bad Andy. <laughs> Bad Andy. <laughs> <laughs> you, did you see those commercials? Uh, there used to be the Domino's commercials called Bad Andy. If you haven't seen them, go look them up on YouTube. That'll date me. But anyway, guys, thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for live Q&A and bonus content after the recording at sellerroundtable.com. Sponsored by the ultimate software tool for Amazon sales and growth, sellerseo.com and amazingathome.com.